Hello and welcome to our latest episode. It's Jay and Andy again, and this is the Rating Room Podcast. Today we are discussing an 80s classic and another Christmas film. For the next hour or so, we are chatting about the film that made Bruce Willis a movie action star. Die Hard follows NYPD officer John McClane, who travels to Los Angeles to reconcile with his estranged wife during her company's Christmas party at the Nakatomi Plaza. The festive celebration takes a dark turn when a group of terrorists, led by Hans Gruber, seize the building, holding hostages and demanding a hefty ransom. That is Die Hard in a paragraph. I'm going to ask you the same question as I start every week with, but I feel a bit silly because I already know the answer to this. Jay, have you seen this before, and what do you remember? So this is a film that we watch every year, similar to the Elf one I knew we discussed last week, really. But I actually watched it a few months ago because I introduced my teenage son to the Die Hard franchise. So we watched the first one, the second one, and the third one, Die Hard, um, with a vengeance. But we haven't, well, I've, I've seen the fourth and the fifth one. There's five, isn't there? And But we haven't watched those two yet, so my son is eager to watch them. But I remember those two not being as good, anywhere near as good as these first three. So I think the first three are definitely the best. I probably would say the first one is probably my favourite in all the franchise. So yeah, I've seen this one. And because I only watched it a few months ago, Andy, we... We remembered pretty much everything. How about you, Andy? Silly question, really, but have you seen this one? I absolutely have. It is a Christmas classic. Um, I would stick to the first three as well. Don't, don't. Your son doesn't need to see four and five. Good films as they are. It's kind of like Toy Story. Should have left it at three. Um, but I've seen it many, many times. Remembered quite a few of the scenes. You know, McLean in the limo, the party at the plaza, the bare feet, the broken glass everywhere, and that. Dare I say, it's a word we use a lot, but it's an iconic ending for Hans Gruber. That that death scene is uh, is pretty memorable. It is very memorable, and we're going to talk about it, obviously, very soon. So as usual, I'm going to kick things off with the box office. The budget for Die Hard was $28 million. The box office returns was $139.4 million. And that means when adjusting the the box office in today's money, it is $362.7 million. And Die Hard debuted at number three in the US weekend box office charts, which was really surprising, um, I must admit, when we researched this. But it did stay in the top 10 for 14 consecutive weeks. So yeah, it did hang about, but I was surprised it didn't debut at number one. It's got number one film written all over, hasn't it? It's very surprising. But I can tell you what, prevented Die Hard from reaching the top spot and that was Who Framed Roger Rabbit and Coming to America a couple of 80s classics they're not sure they're on the same level as Die Hard but uh, very fine films nonetheless other competition came in the form of Cocktail starring Tom Cruise which was out the following week and then claimed the top spot for two weeks consecutively Cocktail I believe is a film I've never watched before so I've heard good things about it someone I work with She's a big Tom Cruise fan, and I believe she's told me before that Cocktail is her favourite Tom Cruise movie. Have you seen that one before? I'm pretty sure I have, and I'm pretty sure it's very good. It's been so long, though, I, I can't remember anything about it other than 
he makes cocktails. <laughs> That's why I'm not in sales. But I've, ven- I've mentioned that, you know, Top, top Gun, I'm not going to say Top Gun though, Andy. Die Hard stayed in the top 10 for 14 consecutive weeks. Now, it did mean that it was the seventh highest grossing film in the US in 1988, which isn't surprising because it is a classic. Um, the top 10 films in 1988 included Rain Man, so another Tom Cruise film, Who Framed Roger Rabbit, Coming to America, Big, we've, we've done that film before, Twins and Crocodile Dundee 2, which we have mentioned the Crocodile Dundee before, but we've not watched that one as part of the podcast yet. We've not all fine, fine films. And as you alluded to, the film was released in 1988, directed by John McTiernan with the soundtrack composed by Michael Kamen. Now, some points of note. Before Bruce Willis was cast as John McClane, the role was actually offered to various different actors. Um, Some of the stars offered the role include Sylvester Stallone, Clint Eastwood, Harrison Ford, Richard Gere, Mel Gibson, Paul Newman, Al Pacino. Arnold Schwarzenegger was also offered the role, but declined it to focus on more comedy roles and went on to star in the aforementioned Twins. So a quick question, Andy, before we crack on. If we were doing some alternate casting, because we've talked about alternate casting in Bond and Season 1 Bond, make sure you check that out if you haven't listened to it already, and now Tom Hanks' season as well. Out of the actors we've just mentioned, Andy, do you have a particular favourite who you think could play John McClane? I mean, it's a fine list of actors, isn't it? I think the one... Well, two stand out, but the one I would say would play the role best would be Harrison Ford. I think, think of his, um, what's that film? Is it The Fugitive? Where he plays a... Uh, yeah, yeah, The Fugitive, yeah. Enforcement officer. That, that kind of um, mould, I think, would work uh, in a film like this. I also think Arnie would have been pretty good as well, but I wonder whether if Arnie was in the role, it would become a little bit more slapstick, a little bit more comedic. I know there are there are funny moments in Die Hard, but it's not a comedy film as such, is it? Whereas I think Arnie would make it probably too comedic. I think well, yeah, I think you could go either way. If it was doing the comedic turn, then definitely. But I think the the issue I would have with Arnie is he was obviously a massive action star already. So Bruce Willis is very good because he, he just seems like the average Joe, isn't he, on the street? Whereas Arnold Schwarzenegger is obviously massively built. And you'd think, oh yeah, he might overcome the terrorist quite easy. I know they've got weapons. Whereas Bruce Willis, I think he's, he's just, well, see, he's just like me and you, Andy. But <laughs> yeah, we're exactly he's like not, Bruce but... Willis, yeah. <laughs> but I think he's he's more like passable as um, a, a copper, a policeman in the um, New York police force where that's why I think the casting is really good and I think in in that list I also think Mel Gibson would be good because he's not massively built and he is you could easily pass as the the average Joe um, a policeman obviously played um, in lethal weapon as well I I would lean um, a, a move away from like Sylvester Stallone and Arnie just because they're big action stars already um, maybe they were unknown, maybe, but um, there, there's some good actors there that have rejected the, the role of John McClane. So, obviously, Bruce Willis um, was cast as John McClane, and he was known for his role on the TV show Moonlighting, which is a show that my parents watched um, 
when I was younger, where he played a comedic role um, as David Addison. Now, Willis initially turned down the role because of his contractual obligations on Moonlighting. And we've, we've had this before, Andy, haven't we, with, was it Pierce Brosnan? In, with Bond Remington Steel. Remington Steel, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so those down contracts stopping actors getting new oh, gigs. These, yeah, contracts. Stop you from doing whatever it is you want to do. <laughs> Unbelievable. But his co-star was pregnant, so the production on Moonlighting was postponed. So just think, Andy, we could be living in an alternate reality where Bruce Willis was never an action movie star. He just kept to TV roles, comedic TV roles. They, they've missed out in any kind of alternate reality there. It would have been like uh, Last Action Hero, wouldn't it, where Arnold Schwarzenegger plays himself, but in, in that reality, the Terminator was Sylvester Stallone. Yeah, I watched that again a few weeks ago. That's a, that's a fun <laughs> film. twice I've watched it yeah, this year. Yeah. Uh, I'm sure we'll talk about Arnie in more detail at some point over the coming weeks. We'll have to check our schedule uh, for that. But in terms of Bruce Willis, he'd only actually ever starred in one other film, predominantly known for his TV work. Uh, but at the time, it was a very clear line between TV and film work. You don't get the crossover that you probably do nowadays. Willis was offered the role and received $5 million dollars which was similar to the fees that established actors like Dustin Hoffman and Robert Redford would command. So that's a pretty respectable chunk of change he's getting. Yeah, I wanted that is quite a, a big gamble, you could say. Or the, the producers had so much faith in Willis that it was going to work out. And credit to Willis, he, you know, getting that fee for his first major film role. Um, you can't knock him there. Now... Alan Rickman made a screen. Um, sorry, Alan Rickman made a screen debut as Hans Gruber, and he was previously best known for his stage work. Um, at this point, now Michael Kamen has provided film scores for a number of different films um, during his career. And if I remember correctly, we mentioned him in one of our Bond episodes. It was License to Kill, as Kamen provided the film score for License to Kill. And obviously there's a link to License to Kill, isn't there, Andy? With another actor that we're going to touch on later on. There's always links back to James Bond. We will never get away from it. It's what put us on the map. And we just can't let go, can we? Um, but Cayman has some other credits as well, including Rita Sue and Bob 2, Lethal Weapon 1-4, to four, Roadhouse, Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, The Last Boy Scout, and many, many more. Now, the director, John McTiernan, lived a very interesting life, you'd have to say. He's known for directing numerous films, including Predator, The Hunt for Red October, Last Action Hero, which we just mentioned, Die Hard with a Vengeance, the third one in the Die Hard series, and The Thomas Crown Affair. Now, Andy, you've mentioned some films there, and I must admit, I've, I've watched a few films recently. We, we watched Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves recently. That's a, a very good film. The Last Boy Scout is a very good film, another Bruce Willis um, film. Now... You know, I mentioned earlier, Andy, I was getting my teenage son and what I'm trying to do, I'm trying to get him into 80s films, 80s, 90s films. So we've been, over the last few months, we watched the Predator series as well. So we you know, I introduced him to Arnie in Predator. So that was very good. And The Hunt for Red October is a brilliant film, Andy. Um, I've watched it again this year and I had all the good intentions and I, I purchased the novel and I've not got around to reading it yet. So it's one of my books that I purchased and it's it, it's stacked somewhere in my living room. 
um, along with many books that my wife just gives me a frown. Now, Thomas Crown Affair, Andy, obviously we've got links there with Pierce Brosnan and also the Red, um, the Hunt for Red October, obviously Sean Connery. So another two links to James Bond as well. Indeed, I tell you, we never get away. Um, now, back to McTiernan. He had a few brushes with the law during his career. He was charged for hiring someone to illegally wiretap a producer on one of his films, the film being Rollerball, and for making a false statement to the FBI. It's led him to enter a plea bargain, and he was sentenced to four months in prison. I remember watching Rollerball when I was um, younger. Um, it's not a film I enjoyed. Now, back to McTiernan, he, he, he did fire his new counsel and try to withdraw his plea bargain. However, the judge declined this, and he was sentenced to four months in prison. But he was allowed to remain out in prison on bail pending an appeal. I always find that quite strange, Andy. Just generally, you know, you, you get sentenced, but actually, I'm going to appeal, and you're allowed on, uh, you know, allowed out on bail. I always find that kind of scenario quite weird. Just an easy out, isn't it? Just uh, buying yourself some extra time. Um, I don't. I mean, I don't know. I've I've never committed a crime because I'm a good boy, so I hope I never find out how this process <laughs> works. But it does seem to be. Uh, open to abuse shall we say um and speaking of the appeal three years later the appeals court allowed mctiernan to withdraw his plea bargain and the case was reopened prosecution then filed additional charges against him and a further two counts of lying to the fbi so as things are going it's not going that well even though he has remained out of prison as things stand but i'm sure there's more to this story isn't there there is, so he's got three years out of prison now, Andy, so that's good, so he could be doing loads of different things. So facing the possibility of more than five years in prison, McTiernan entered another plea bargain, so he's come back again with a plea bargain. Now, this led to McTiernan being sentenced to 12 months in prison, and he ended up serving 328 days in prison, so that is pretty good in terms of the justice system because you will see in the news people get sentenced to x amount of years but they come out a lot earlier than that um and the remaining time was under house arrest as well and he's not directed a film since his release but it goes back to your early po- early point though doesn't it it had got four months if it had just taken the four months but he's ended up doing a year or best part of a year so um he's not thought that through yeah he threw those dice and he didn't pay um I, Sally Andy, I just want to just mention something to you here because this is this is very similar to a podcast that I just listened to about. It's called the Crossbow Killer. We're digressing, Andy, so apologies. It's a BBC podcast, and this person was charged, and he was on reprimand, which I believe, um, based on this podcast, is when you're actually in prison. So he ended up being, this was during the pandemic, Andy. So he's ended up being in reprimand for three years because his court cases kept getting cancelled for various reasons. Now, he ended up, so he essentially pleaded not guilty. So when it came to the third court case, um, court hearing, he actually changed his um, verdict, um, his, what do you call it? His, his plea. Um, plea to guilty and they were saying on the podcast because if he was found guilty um it would mean that he would have been in prison potentially longer 
than how he, he would have been because he'd done those three years already. So by pleading, I'm sorry, if, if he pleaded not guilty and then found guilty, it meant he was potentially going to be in prison a lot more because of the three years he did. Whereas if he pleaded guilty, he can be out a lot quicker because he served those three years. So, and also this person, the police wanted him for other crimes, but there were no evidence by having this court case, it would allow them to use the court case to kind of bring in these other things to try to trip him up. So it was really interesting. It kind of just brought it back to me where we were talking about this. So sorry for digressing, Andy, and boring you. No, it's, <laughs> this, it's good to this, hear. This, it was a true life podcast, two crime podcast um, about a killing in a, a Welsh village by a crossbow. Very, it was very good. Some, some free publicity there for that podcast. You should, yes, yeah. not, <laughs> not affiliated with the rating room, it has to be said. But uh, come rating room recommended, they can put that on their advertising slogan and, <laughs> and take off the world is their oyster. But let's get back to Die Hard, shall we? Jan de Bont was the cinematographer on Die Hard. De Bont was would later work as cinematographer on numerous films, including Black Rain uh, with Ridley Scott. Uh, the Hunt for Red October, uh, another McTiernan film, and Lethal Weapon 3, uh, Richard Donner. And De Bont would also direct a number of films, and I'm, I'm smirking to myself, Andy, because I remember we talked about at least two of these in our sequel special. Speed and Speed 2, Cruise Control, Twister, The Haunting, and the Lara Croft Tomb Raider, The Cradle of Life, when we were talking about sequels. And I remember talking about Speed 2, Cruise Control, which was one of my least favourite sequels. Yeah, disappointing. I've seen Lara Croft Tomb Raider with Angelina Jolie. I know there's been sequels and remakes and recasts and all that kind of stuff, so I couldn't tell you who's Lara Croft these days. I couldn't tell you about any of the other films. That's the only one I've seen was the Angelina Jolie original, dare I say original. Yeah, she was original in terms of the, the film version. Yes, yes. Now, Die Hard, the film, was adapted from the book Nothing Lasts Forever, which was in, in itself a sequel to the novel The Detective, which had already been made into a film starring Frank Sinatra. Now, I don't know if you know the answer to this, Jay, and I don't know if this is a stupid question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Is the movie of The Detective starring Frank Sinatra... Does that have the character John McClane? Or are they not related? Is this something I need to Google? Or do you know the answer? No, well, so, I, I bet I, so, I believe I know the answer, but it would be, be sensible to sense track me. So, Andy, Frank Sinatra played, I believe, John McClane or a variation of John McClane. So, interestingly, Andy... Frank Sinatra was quite old when Die Hard was being made. However, he had a contractual commitment that if there was a, another Die Hard kind of film, he had the role. So they had to offer him him the John McClane role in Die Hard. And he turned it down. I see. I'm, I'm on the uh, Wikipedia page of The Detective, which, as we know, is the most reliable source of information on the internet. Frank Sinatra played the role of Detective Sergeant Joe Leyland. I remember researching this, Andy. Because, you know, as I've mentioned countless times, Andy, <laughs> I'm sure I'm getting early um, onset of dementia. No, 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 you're, no, you're right. I'm, I'm, I'm reading further. The novel was adapted into 1988 film 
Die Hard in which Joe Leyland's name was changed to John McClane. Yeah, and he did have a like a contractual, either commitment or um, a contractual uh, requirement where they had to ask Frank Sinatra about playing the role in Die Hard and he turned it down because at that time he would have been older than 60 and it wouldn't have really worked. Yeah, it's a very different movie, isn't it, with, with Frank Sinatra in the lead. So he was born in 1915, so he would have been 72 at the time of the film's release. Quick math. So, yeah, no uh, no Sinatra. Willis took the role and he did it his way. <laughs> so, the we're, we're talking about books, and now let's talk about the screenwriter. So the main screenwriter was Steve E. D. Souza. And Bruce Willis have very different views on whether Die Hard is actually a Christmas film. Now, D'Souza declared the film is a Christmas film in 2017. However, in 2018, Willis stated that Die Hard isn't a Christmas film. I hope you sat down while I dropped that bombshell. Now, let's have a quick look at the arguments for both sides. So, Andy, you do the the against, and I will do the for, but I know the against might not necessarily be your view, but just some of the arguments why people think it's it's not a Christmas film. Yeah, this goes against my natural instinct, but I'll try and I'll try and play I'll try and play Switzerland and give you the the argument for the against. <laughs> so the the first point is that the film was released during the summer. Uh, there's too much gore, there's fight scenes, action. Too, too much of that to be really classed as a Christmas film. That's not something you normally associate with a Christmas film. You know, interesting point. And if you change the timing of the film, it wouldn't impact the outcome of the plot. There's another point. Arg- argue the other way, Joe. Uh, Jay. Sorry, Joe. Haven't Joe, 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 Joe who is this? I'm, I'm, yeah. Getting, yeah. I'm getting confused. Is this another podcast you're doing, Andy, I'll, with, I'll it, cut that out. with your all, co-host all called Joe? Frank Sinatra's talk uh, has got me confused. So, see, Andy, you mentioned about too much score, and I would think I would, you know, you could argue that case, but I don't know if you've seen the film. I've not seen it, but I noticed it was on Sky, a Christmas film called Violent Night. So I've not seen that, and I believe it's got the actor from Stranger Things that plays Hopper. Uh, That that sounds like a a violent film. I mean, very much so, yeah. Set set at night. (laughs) Violent Night. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, it kind of goes against that point that people argue. Um, so I've got, I've got three points here. Now, in in terms of supporting this is a Christmas film, the film takes place on Christmas Eve. Very important timing. Christmas songs feature throughout the film. Another stable in terms of Christmas films. And a subtle nod to Christmas as John's wife is called Holly. Now, Andy, you kind of alluded to it. You you are definitely um, not sitting on the fence here. This is definitely a Christmas film in your eyes. Definitely a Christmas film. Um, and I know I made the point, but you know, as as part of my role as the against counsel, but it says you change the timing of the film and it wouldn't impact the outcome of the plot. I disagree with that point because the whole purpose of John's visit was to visit his family at Christmas. Why would why would he have a big teddy bear in the airport? Why would he want to visit his family at any other time of year? So you know that that in itself means if if you don't do it at Christmas, he's got no real reason to visit his his family. And also the setting, it's a Christmas party. If you're not having a Christmas party, what are you having a party for? Because 
Indeed, indeed. Yeah. Someone's leaving. It's, either, it's either your own birthday or Jesus's birthday. They're the <laughs> reasons, aren't they? And any other faiths out there that might celebrate particular days? Yes. Thanksgiving. Uh, yes. <laughs> would you have a Thanksgiving party? I don't know. Well, we wouldn't in this country. No, we wouldn't. I mean, I don't. I don't. I don't celebrate Christmas for religious reasons. It's more because I like days off work um, and I like presents <laughs> and, and, and food. Yes. <laughs> but uh, but yeah, it's a good point you make. It's a, it's a seasonal holiday, isn't it? It and is. It's a reason for but, a party. And I, I agree. I, I do think it's a um, a Christmas film. It's not my favourite Christmas film, mind, but it is a, a Christmas film. It feels like we should do something about Christmas, Andy, in the future. Like dedicate like an episode or something. It seems like a good idea. Hold that thought for another week or so. But uh, I guess the the only point I slightly agree with would be the fact that the film was released during the summer. It could have, it should have just been released at Christmas, but I guess they wanted they wanted the money there and then. Well, Andy, let's just go back to our earlier point when I mentioned that the film didn't debut at number one, and maybe if it came out at Christmas, it would have debuted at number one. Should have we been involved? I would have been. What's that? I would have been seven years old. I should have been in that office. What would have you been about? I would have just turned four in 1988. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Schoolboy ever releasing that in the summer. I I won't pick you up on the fact that you said seven and your maths is a bit out. uh, It's it's the the Christmas season, so I'll I'll, I'll be generous and I won't pick you up. I was born... That was it 62, 63 you were born? <laughs> I was born 81. 81. I get confused yeah. easily, but you know. I, I forget my blimmin' age. I always have to think what my ages work out when I was born and do it that way because my mind's going. If you if you know it's your like, age, you're still young, but if you don't know, it's probably because you're old. That's, <laughs> yeah. that, that can be the general rule. Um, but uh, let's, let's steer the course. We're going to go back on topic somewhat, but I just want to pick up on your early point around our links to James Bond, because obviously we talk about James Bond a lot in season one, because that's what it was all about, but now the season is over. We've never really let go of Bond, have we? So there's a couple of things that I wanted to point out here. Um, First one is that Andreas Wisniewski, I'm sure I got that name wrong last time I said it as well, but (laughs) Andreas Wisniewski played Necros in The Living Daylights, and also appeared here in Die Hard as Tony. Indeed, and I remember, Andy, you having that name last time. And it seems like a coincidence that you get the name again this time. It's just how the um, cookie crumbles, I suppose. But talking about other actors, Robert Davey played villain Frank Sanchez in Licence to Kill. And obviously we mentioned Licence to Kill a bit earlier on. And he plays special agent johnson in die hard now just before we kind of move on to talking about the actual film a bit in a bit more detail there's a brilliant tv episode i don't know if you've seen this series before um it's on netflix if you in the uk there's a tv show called the movies that made us oh sorry the movies that made yeah the movies that made us and it includes quite a lot of information about die hard and it does uh, i think it's home alone um, numerous other films and it's really interesting because um it talks about the the struggles like making the actual film um, and it does talk about the frank sinatra bit and the the original novel and the original film so if you do have a spare hour or so it's definitely worth checking that one out 
Yeah, thanks, Charles. Good recommendation there. I'll certainly look out for that and suggest our listeners do as well. Let's get into the talking about the film, shall we? So, obviously, we're not going to go scene by scene. We're going to just pick out some highlights along the way. But the film starts with John McClane being met at the airport by a limo driver, Argyle. He's never been in a limo before, and uh, quite an amusing scene. He rides up front, and the giant teddy that he brought with him on the plane is in the back by himself. Argyle, brilliant name, I like that name. Now, John McClane arrives at Nakatomi Plaza, which in real life is known as the Fox Plaza, and they talk about that in the documentary. So, uh, I was aware of that. And he makes his way up to his wife's office. Now, he's, he's discovered that his wife... Um, Holly is using a maiden name, Gennaro. And at that time, Andy, 1988, I think the touchscreen was very modern. Because I'm just met, Andy, it's only the last couple of years that my GP practice has got a checking screen. So, you know, they're, they're ahead of the ball game it here. It seems like it, doesn't it? Yeah. Um, but uh, I do have a question right off the bat. So obviously we've we've spoken about the fact that this is a Christmas film and it's set at Christmas, and this is Christmas Eve. What sort of company organises an office Christmas party for Christmas Eve? Andy, that's a very good question because I think if you ask me that question or if I ask you that que- question when maybe you're 20 years old, you might have a different answer. But because we're middle-aged now, I couldn't, I would hate to have a Christmas pie on Christmas Eve. But as a youngster, no family commitments, Christmas Eve party. I'm thinking about when I was younger. I, I personally didn't go out on Christmas Eve, Andy. I don't know you did, but I know one of my brothers used to go out drinking because I remember next day him being hungover. <laughs> and even my younger brother, when we go and visit uh, my parents on Christmas Day, He's often hungover because he's been out on Christmas Eve. But from a Christmas party point of view, in terms of a works do, very, very weird. Because, hmm, who's going to be wrapping those presents up? Who's going to be getting the old pie carrot out for Santa Claus and um, Rudolph, if you believe in Christmas? Which Which you absolutely should. No, I agree. I mean, the last time I went out on Christmas Eve was 20 years ago. That was back when I was a singleton went out clubbing and they even did a Christmas Day countdown like it was New Year's Eve, um, which, was, which, was, which was quite good. But uh, nowadays, I, I want to be home from Christmas Eve. The best part about Christmas Eve, if you're at work, is that you usually get to leave a bit early. So uh, Indeed not, it is. Not yeah. leaving late for the party. So um, poor organisation there on, on uh, from the Nakatomi company. Uh, so McLean gets to meet Holly's boss, Takagi, and a co-worker co-worker called Ellis now I didn't catch his name straight away so when I was writing my notes I simply wrote coke sniffing douche <laughs> you know who I mean if I said that even if I'd not given the name now Ellis is a is a sleazy executive isn't he whereas Takagi comes across as uh, quite respected and respectable yes Andy and your comment there um coke sniffing douche is very American douche isn't it it's not a I, I don't hear that kind of phrase in day-to-day life unless i'm watching a film or american tv yes, show the, the u.s the influence has, has taken hold yes. on me we get um, a half hour listeners are based in america so you're kind of catering although andy i'm gonna have to pick you up because i'm sure in our james bond season 
you mentioned something and I can't I remember did, what yeah, it is. No, um, Bond was talking about his cell phone rather than his mobile. Yeah. <laughs> you know, this, this, is, this is slightly different though because douche is not an American specific word. Yeah, we we English okay. can use the word douche and we, we do call our cocaine coke. So uh, I'm I'm going to defend myself on that one. But yes, it's, prob- no, it's probably no. more American. I'll, ch- I'll change it then. What I should have written was coke sniffing wanker. The old beep machine is going to be busy today. Now, uh, Finns are tense between McLean and his wife, Holly, and kind of it was alluded to and briefly discussed on the journey with Argyle and McLean. Now, McLean has come to LA to try and reconcile with Holly. Now, she's moved over from New York six months ago to focus on her new job. Now, they have an argument um, already, so things are not going as well as McLean had hoped, and I think his night is going to turn even worse from this point forward. Yes, the tone has been set very much, hasn't it? Um, And terrorists arrive at Nakatomi Plaza, kills the guard on the welcome desk and the security guard near the lifts. Then a group of terrorists emerge from a truck, in the underground car park or parking lot, depending on where where you are from. We've got our first real big continuity continuity issue or mistake here. We later find out that the truck has got an ambulance in it that's going to be used for their escape. However, in this scene, when the truck arrives, no evidence of an ambulance in the truck whatsoever. So a big big boo-boo there. Yeah, and I think this is something that... You're either going to be really kind of keep your eyes out or you have to watch this film more than once because you kind of remember how it ends and then when this scene happens, you think, oh, what happened? So I remember watching this months ago with my son and I remember picking this out to say, you know, look at this bit. Now, we, we've done some research here to actually find out how, how did this happen because this seems quite a, an obvious error. Now, the reason to for this mistake is that the ambulance getaway was a late addition to the film. Now, this was also linked to a scene which was cut from the final version as well. So originally, the terrorists would all synchronize their watches in the truck as they're on their way to Nakatomi Building and Plaza. And they were all wearing the same brand of watch. Now, McLean notes this later in the film. However... This was cut due to changes in the script and all references to the same watch were removed, including this truck scene that was originally cut. Now, that meant that there was no ambulance in it. So they cut as much of this scene as possible and hoped the audience wouldn't notice the missing ambulance in the truck. Because when you see it, Andy, and you know, looking back, because you've obviously watched this multiple times, when you see the truck, you know, driving there, pulling up it's obvious they're not going to be able to get an ambulance in there considering there's a group of terrorists as well it is yeah but it's one of those where at the time you're watching the scene it's not egregious because obviously you don't know in theory you don't know that an ambulance is needed later on in the piers it's more when you see it later on if you remember back and you go hang on a minute where did that ambulance come from but at the time it happens early on you probably get away with it just about yeah, I think, yeah, no, I agree. I think if you've seen the films multiple times or you've got a very good memory and you think that there's no way the, the ambulance was in that truck originally, I don't think you would pick it up. 
But no, it's a, um, we obviously used to pick out continuity mistakes in season one. We don't do that now, but we've picked that one out there because I think it's it's quite a biggie. Yeah, sometimes you just you just have to call them out because they're so they're so massive. Now, one thing I didn't notice, um, and actually my wife picked up on this, is that the the background music when the terrorists are getting their stuff together and you know taking over the building in the various scenes. The ominous background music sounded a bit like Walking in a Winter Wonderland, which goes back to your early point about there being Christmas songs throughout. Now, I didn't catch it, but I've got a feeling she's correct about this. So uh, point to my wife there for that one. Indeed, Andy. I don't think um, I... Unless you're going to sing it for me, Andy, I'm not sure um, how that song goes. But um, we we will let um, your wife keep that point, a well-deserved point. Now, because um, Christmas songs, I do like Christmas songs, Andy, but it's not one that, unless you're going to sing it for me, jumps out um, straight and away. I'm not. Pardon? I'm not going to sing it for you. <laughs> I, thought you I thought that was you, you kind of muttering the song then. So I thought we were going to be treated to a, a singing um, podcast as well. Now, uh, you know, the terrorists gate crash the Christmas party and they just start shooting things up and everything. And, you know, the the they're gathering the hostages into the foyer. Now, McLean manages to sneak from the office via the fire exit, but we also get a um, because we do we did. I'm going to keep mentioning this, Andy. We keep going back to season one, but we did a um, was it nipple watch or something in season one? Because you get more than the old nipple watch in this bit, didn't you? Yes, a couple of co-workers were getting very friendly in one of the offices. Has to be said. I guess the thing with with nipple watching Bond though is that it's not that kind of film. So it's it's a surprise, but uh, films like this, Shagging's not really a surprise, is it? It's just <laughs> especially not at a, an office Christmas party. So I'm told. So I'll say yes. So I'm told yeah. yes. I've never actually had a party at the office on Christmas Eve, so I can't confirm or deny. Nobody actually has po- parties at their office anymore, do they? I'm just thinking now if I've ever been to a Christmas. No, I've never been to one on site. It's it's much better to trash someone else's location rather than trash your own office isn't it yeah because you usually just either go to a restaurant a book out a function yeah, room exactly or something yeah yeah but there's always talk the next morning of a couple of people that have been been at it so andy um this is how boring boring i am the last christmas party i went to was probably the the year before the pandemic so that would be 2018 Christmas yeah and I went to the Christmas party it was in Sheffield and I I went for the meal and I was driving and um I then went Christmas shopping <laughs> and went to the like, chocolate shop and stuff to get some chocolates for um the kids um as well and that is the the rock and roll life I live Andy and that's the last one I I went to because I'm not going to this year's either I'm a party pooper. Party pooper, yeah, kind of like these uh, terrorist guys. Not, not for the same reasons. Obviously, I'm not accusing you of. Uh, no, I didn't go in the same. Like. Uh, you know, you're you're in the same ballpark. You are a party pooper. Um, back to this particular party, McLean. We see him triggering a fire alarm. Hopefully, to try and get some backup, but the plan doesn't work. Hans sends Tony to investigate the fire alarm and gets someone to notify the authorities that it's a false alarm, and we see. Um, 
McLean's up high because the office is, I think, the 30th floor and McLean's looking from a window maybe a couple of floors higher than that. And he sees this parade of fire engines coming down the road and he's thinking, oh, here we go, backups here. And then all of a sudden they all just turn their lights off and turn around. Um, quite a quite a good scene. Uh, we're also introduced to Hans at this point. Very sophisticated and polite terrorist, I must say. What a lovely, lovely man. He is very nice. Very sophisticated, Andy. Now, Hans interrogates Takagi, but Takagi won't give up his security code. And that leads to Takagi being executed. Now, Hans then informs the hostages that Takagi is dead. And I can't remember exactly the, the word in the quote that he uses. Um, but at this point, McLean then sends the dead body of Tony down the elevator wearing a Santa's hat and has written ho, 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 which is a little joke, Andy, that um, I, <laughs> I used of my wife because I got some donuts um, from Dunkin', Dunkin' Donuts recently. And, you know, like places like Starbucks where they write your name on. And on the Dunkin' Donuts, it says, ho, ho, ho. And I said I said to my wife, look, they wrote your name on here. <laughs> These ones are for you. <laughs> That'll be why so, you're sleeping yes. in the spare room, then. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I, I thought this was really good because um, this bit is where he, he essentially he's on top of, laying down on top of the, the lift um, elevator. And he, he's making notes, isn't he, on his arm. He's kind of doing a little tally of who, what terrorists around. And from memory as well, he wrote writes some of the names down, doesn't he, as well, um, from memory. He does, yeah. He's, so he's doing recon, isn't yeah, he? Yeah, he's collecting intel as he goes along. I think the quote you're referring to earlier about when he informed the hostages was something along the lines of, um, I'm afraid he won't be joining us for the rest of his life. Yeah, which is, yeah, funny way of saying that he's just killed yeah, him. So, I like yeah. that. Um, now we're introduced to Al Powell at this point, as McLean calls for backup. And Al Powell is uh, on duty copper. Um, is at the local shop, isn't he? Shopping for donuts. Um, and he also, uh, just for reference, has a cameo in Die Hard Two. Yeah, Die Hard Two is a is a very good um, film. Now Hans sends some of the terrorists to the rooftop to find McLean because McLean is. Um, calling for backup as Andy mentioned and Hans is thinking where's the best place to get a signal so he sends um, them to the rooftop and there's a firefight now McLean does manage to escape via this little turbine fin and it's you know in this air dot and this must be probably one of the most memorable scenes in the film and this is the one where McLean is in the air vent and he's using the lighter and that is that, you know, you mentioned at the beginning, Andy, that like the iconic, uh, kind of that infamous end scene. When you think about Die Hard, this is another scene that I would say is memorable. It is, yeah. I'm I'm going to stop at this point because I think I've got my quotes out of order. So I think that the quote I mentioned earlier comes later on in the film, so I might have to do some fancy editing, or I'll just leave this in and just admit that I made a mistake, which you know, <laughs> very rarely happens. Um. But we've got a scene where two of the terrorists attack McLean and he takes them both down. And this does actually lead to some more memorable quotes. So there's there's been a few so far. Um, we don't normally do this, but let's... Should we give the listeners a few of what we've had so far in terms of memorable quotes? This is another throwback, Andy, to James Bond, where we did a bit of role-play. Indeed. In quotes Indeed, and one-liners. Why, why, why don't you kick us off with uh, with your best John McLean impression? 
Yes, I won't. Well, I'm not going to do the impression because he does this little kind of like sake voice. But he goes like, come out to the coast, we'll get together, have a few laughs. And that's when McLean is in the event, which is, I probably sounded a bit like Super Mario then. It's <laughs> me, Jay and Andy. <laughs> <laughs> I can't act, I can't act. It's okay, we'll, uh, we'll stick to, to podcasting. Now there's another one where uh, one of the terrorists taunts McLean about hesitating to pull the trigger. And he just says, thanks for the advice. Short and sweet. Now, the last one I'm going to say is where McLean says this after throwing the terrorist from the building um, and <laughs> this, this terrorist lands on the windscreen of Pal's car and he goes, welcome to the party, pal. Yeah, definitely one of the more memorable ones, that is. Now, I know I made at this point, so there's, um, there's various fight scenes happening. So a couple of floors up from the office party, there's floors under construction. The walls are very, very flimsy. I mean, they just go through them like they're paper. You know, it's kind of clearly not not finished. It's probably why it's still under construction, but, you know, they've, it's like they've used cardboard instead of concrete. Yeah, you'd think a lazy area where they have a lot of earthquakes, don't they, Andy? Is that right? They do, One yeah. Of Cali- California is, yeah. is uh, notorious Hot for earthquakes. Spot. Yeah. So you would think there'd be, um, I know it's under construction, but you think there'd be a bit more um, stability. Um, when you mention this, Andy, I know I'm going to um, jump back to um, James Bond, but you know when you said that, I immediately thought of the Daniel Craig one, Casino Royale, you know where he, he's doing like the parkour and he's running through the building. Cause he runs through a wall, doesn't he? Does, he does, yeah. The, the guy's chasing kind of hops up over the wall through this high window, doesn't he? And Craig just runs straight through. Yeah, they, they, they're not as flimsy as these ones. Now, the deputy police chief arrives and he takes over the scene and he, he clashes with Pal. And I think his name's Dwayne from memory. And I can't remember if he mentioned that later or not. So we have a scene where Holly is talking to Hans as well and she she's negotiating a few things, um, like things to make the hostages more comfortable. For example, one of the, the hostages is pregnant. So... Um, she she agrees to have the the sofa or like you know a seat taken out and that toilet breaks etc etc. Now I I like that because she's showing some backbone and she she stands up for herself because she said something doesn't she like who put you in he says something like who put you in charge and she says like you did by killing my boss or something like that. Yeah, some of those but yeah, she's definitely trying to make things a bit easier for people and it's around this point actually where Hans. Uh, says the quote he won't be joining us for the rest of his life when he's talking about Takagi now another quote that I wrote down at this point and again I'm going to have to get my beeping machine out for this one but McLean's on the phone to the 911 operator and um, she's not really buying it that it's a real emergency or that he's a real copper as she's kind of there's there's some some trepidation on, on her side but it's the, it's the line where he just says no fucking shit lady does it sound like I'm ordering pizza and he just, <laughs> I just popped for that. I thought that was funny. It, it, it is funny, yeah. Because it's, um, basically, it's like just get them out here, then. If you know, you can. If I'm in trouble, get them out here. Come and arrest me. Exactly. Now, the next note I wrote down watching this film is probably the most important question that I'm going to ask through the entire podcast. When. Did he change his vest? And that's a very good question, Andy, because I googled this because 
I couldn't think exactly what you um, was kind of alluding to there. Now, I, I use Google Images as well. So <laughs> his shirt changes from white to green when he leaves the air dot that we kind of mentioned a few minutes ago. Now, I don't know if they were kind of thinking he's crawling through an air vent, so he's going to get dirt on it. But like you said, his vest is changed. So it's not like it's just dirt and grime. It's gone from white to green. Because yeah, he's it, already got a bit of dirt and grime and blood on it, hasn't it, from various yeah, things that have happened yeah. so far. But this is just a different vest. Like, I'm not saying we need to see a scene where he changes his vest, although I'm sure there are some people out there that would enjoy that sort of thing. But at what point did he have a spare vest with him? He clearly didn't. So this is a massive, massive continuity error, surely. And these are the kind of the ones where, and I'm, I'm sure we mentioned it before, where you'd think the actor would pick this up because I know they have continuity um, people making sure everything is in place and people are like in the same position, etc., etc. But you wearing a different colour top, surely, I know they don't film it necessarily on the same, you know, they don't do it in order, the scenes, and that this, this will span days and not weeks and not months. So, you know, you might not realise, but I don't know. I'd like to think I'd be a bit more observant <laughs> going from white to green. It's not like you're wearing a watch on your left arm and then it's on your right arm or something like that, is it? This is this is <laughs> pretty fundamental. Yes. Now, the police attempt to breach Nakatomi Plaza and it, it's just a mess. It has not gone well at all. Now, the terrorists handle the situation with ease and they use a rocket launcher on the police vehicles. Well, that is kind of the word I've put here. It's like a mini tank. Yeah, it's um, it's like a SWAT team type thing, isn't it? I don't know what, what the correct terminology for it is, but mini tank is a very good description. Now, around this point, Argyle finally twigs on what's happening. So this whole time he's been sat waiting in the car park in the limousine because he's not sure... What's going? You know whether he needs a pickup or not. I think McLean is not sure how well his wife's going to react to him being there, so he hangs out in in the car park. But he's been listening to music. He's he's talking to his girlfriend, completely oblivious to what's going going on around him. Uh, but he now finally, finally twigs. He's just enjoying his Christmas Eve, just chilling out in the company limo. Now, this does lead to another memorable scene involving an office chair, plastic explosive, an elevator shaft, and lots of broken glass. So, very enjoyable seeing this one is. It is, yeah, broken glass uh, most definitely is uh, is important. Now, Ellis, the uh, the aforementioned coke-sniffing douche, is, uh, is in with hands, he's trying to negotiate with him, and he doesn't really appreciate the severity of the situation he's in. And he's acting pretty relaxed, and he he says this line, which was actually ad libbed by the actor. Um, and it's a it's a very very good line, and in certainly in keeping with the character of Alice, when he says, "Hans, booby, I'm your white knight." He he doesn't appreciate the situation at all. He's obviously, like you said, coke top um, douche. Now, the reason he's gone to negotiate is because he's pretending to be friends with McLean. And they have a very brief conversation via the walkie-talkie. And Ellis is trying to convince McLean to return the detonators. 
Um, but it doesn't end well for Ellis. And he's killed off camera. And then you see them dragging his dead body out of the office. Yeah, I wasn't so upset when he died, to be honest. But, you know, you get what you deserve. But we've got some more characters on the scene now. We've got the FBI agents. And um, they introduce themselves. I'm Agent Johnson. This is Special Agent Johnson. No relation. Which is... um, It's one of those, if you know, you know. Why, that's funny. Um, But they arrive to save the day. But um, not exactly save the day, as we find out later, because it turns out they're happy that 20-25% of hostages dying is is a success on a mission, which is uh, quite a worrying statistic that they've pulled out of thin air. It is. It is very worrying. And myself and Andy are an analytical background, and I don't think we could ever get away with a (laughs) 20-25% um, deviation from what we you know anticipated so it's quite shockingly um, high that is now Hans goes to check the explosives on the rooftop and he comes across McLean so this is the first time they've actually seen each other because obviously they've only spoken via walkie-talkie now Hans is very quick and he uses a fake name and says his name is Bill Clay and he's using this fake American accent yeah this is a really good scene uh, McLean gives Bill Clay a handgun to protect himself and they make a move, but Hans calls for backup, tries to kill McLean, but the gun is empty. So, of course, McLean knew there was something off about this Bill Clay character. But what I did like is Alan Rickman having a accent of a terrorist doing an accent of an American. I mean, I, very, very well done. You know, bravo to Mr. Rickman there for this. I think, and I don't think I put this in the notes, Andy, I believe they introduced this scene because the director heard um, Alan Rickman doing the fake American accent off camera and they were impressed with him. So they introduced this scene to kind of play on this fake American accent that he was doing. But I get, you know, it's really well said how you said it there. A... um, a fake accent doing another fake accent it's, it's very well done by Alan, um, Alan Rickman so we have another memorable scene involving Hans and Carl where they are seen shooting the glass and it's because we, Hans has noticed that McLean isn't wearing any shoes now McLean manages to make it out of there and later on he, he makes his way to the rooftop to to save the hostage to save the hostages. So we've we've had a little bit of jump here because there's lots of things that have happened um, in the film in terms of you see him picking out the glass, don't you? Um, from his poorly feet um because of all the, the shooting that they've done. Yeah, I told you broken glass was important and very much so in this scene because there is a lot of glass here, isn't there? Now, we see, um, oh, sorry, we we see one of the terrorists in a pretty bad mood and Holly comments to one of the other hostages, only John can drive someone that crazy. So that's her confirmation that he is still alive at this point. Yes, yes, and she she appreciates the, the type of person John McLean is. Now, McLean and Carl are having a fight which ends with McLean putting a metal chain around Carl's neck and sliding her across this ceiling pulley, um, which sees Carl struggling in midair. Surely he's died um, from being strangled midair. I assumed he was dead at this point as well. 
Um, but it's a really, really good fight scene. But I did note that the sound effects were a bit off for me. So the punches and the kicks sounded more like gunshots, in my opinion, which was just a, just a little bit off-putting. Uh, no, I didn't pick that one up, Andy. So good observation. Now, we have more action scenes um, as well. So things are really kicking off now. And um, before McLean makes his way down to the vault to save Holly. Now, this involves a great scene involving some sticky tape, uh, a gun, and a western shootout. Plus, I suppose the most important point here, Andy, Holly's top is revealing more and more with each passing scene. So I don't know if you noticed that, but I noticed that. I think, like, what's happening there? And like each bit was like getting more and more um, noticeable. Uh, I'll be honest, I didn't notice that. Normally I would because I'm... Uh... I'm a teenage boy trapped in a man's body. Um, but uh, I guess that gives new meaning to die hard, doesn't it? But um, last point, because the film is, is pretty much at an end now, is the uh, the scene where Hans falls from the building to his death. It was filmed using a 20-foot drop onto an airbag. And what, what the uh, director and producers did to, to help get the right reaction is that they said to Rickman, we're going to drop you on the count of three but they actually dropped him on the count of two. So they got the the real reaction because he was legitimately surprised by it. And this was apparently the last shot that Alan Rickman filmed for Die Hard, appropriately so. So Andy, that's obviously the end of the film. We've obviously got a little bit more we're going to talk about, but we've talked about different quotes, but I, I suppose the... We haven't actually mentioned the most memorable quote, would you say, from the film? And that wasn't deliberate. I was intrigued to see if you were going to bring it up because I was thinking about this. But um, we haven't mentioned we, that yet. We haven't mentioned it. And to be honest, I didn't even know at what point in the film it happened. But when you think of a quote from Die Hard, you obviously think, you pick a motherfucker. You do, you do. And um, I was thinking, like I said, I was thinking about it um, it wasn't in the notes and I was thinking like, oh, when we do it, I wonder if Andy's going to mention it. And if he's not, I'm going to kind of bring it up at the end um, because it is probably the most memorable one. So I'm glad you said it and not me because I don't like to curse on camera. My bleep machine is untouched. It's got dust on, whereas yours is probably faded <laughs> with all the bleeping. I, I cater to a different audience, clearly. You're a bit more family friendly than I am. Um. But uh, we're at the end of Die Hard now, so that means only one thing. We need to bring in our ratings to the rating room. So, Jay, Christmas classic or not, what did you give this one out of ten? It is a classic, regardless of being a a Christmas film. It is, you know, I don't know if we're going to watch any of the Die Hards in the future. Hopefully our podcast will be going on years and years, and we may be doing other Die Hard films. But for me, it is the, the strongest Die Hard one. And a a very, uh, I, um, I haven't done a 10 out of 10, Andy, but I didn't give 10 out of 10, but it was, I would say it's quite close. It was a 9 out of 10. So another um, good film that we've done. So I would have to say this is my favourite Christmas film and re-watching it again recently just reaffirmed that um, that status for me. So I also gave this a 9 out of 10. So... As always, we bring through the views of IMDb and Rotten Tomatoes. So IMDb has a an average score of 
point two out of ten, so largely consistent with what myself and Andy have said. What about Rotten Tomatoes, Andy? Rotten Tomatoes, much more generous. 94% on the Tomatometer and a 94% audience score. So fantastic ratings from the the guys and gals at Rotten Tomato. So let's wrap things up with our main feature, which is, of course, the Rank Bank. Jay, do you want to kick us off with a reminder of runtime? So the runtime, we are combining all the films in season three. So we had Elf at one hour, 36 minutes. And Die Hard goes straight in at number one with two hours and 12 minutes. And this is one of those type of films that doesn't feel like a two hour plus film because it just flies by and it's just jam packed full of action. Or about the box office, Andy. I completely agree around the, the runtime, but onto the box office. So the budget, as mentioned earlier, $28 million, so slightly more than what Elf um, spent. Uh, $139 million in the worldwide box office. We are ranking on the adjusted box office figure, which for Die Hard was $362.7 million, so just behind Elf. Not far at all, but uh, as things stand, second place by by a whisker. This season, as we mentioned last week, we have our film rankings, but we are doing things slightly different um, this season. So we're having the film rankings split by genre. So last week we had Elf, and Elf is a Christmas film, but it's a comedy film. So Elf went in at number one um, in the comedy rankings. Now, Die Hard is not a comedy, even though there, there are some funny bits in it. We've classed it as an action film. So Die Hard is the first film to go in our action list in season three. And as I've mentioned, it's a nine out of ten, a very strong nine out of ten. So straight in at number one. Andy, do you just want to remind our listeners what you gave Die Hard? Yes, just to confirm, I also gave it nine out of ten. So it's first out of one on our action genre. But we are going to be doing more action films, more comedy films, more films of other genres. So these, these rankings will grow over time. Um, for those of you who are keeping score at home. And if you, you know, if, if you disagree that Die Hard's a Christmas film, or you want to argue the case, you can contact us on our social media accounts and let us know, you know, is Die Hard the, the best Die Hard in the franchise? Yeah, that's, uh, there's a few questions to unpack there, isn't there? Is it the best Die Hard? Is it the best Christmas film? Is it a Christmas film? Lots to weigh up there. Jay, is there anything you want to talk about before we we sign off for another week like um what you've been listening to recently for example so um i'm not going to talk about music this week andy let's save that for another week there is a, a podcast that I, I listened to recently and also andy i want to ask you a question so the podcast i listen to is i ha- i have a passing interest in world war and I came across a podcast by the BBC called Nuremberg, The Trial of the Nazi War Criminals, um, the other week. And I binged the 16 episodes over a week. It was really, really good. Um, highly recommended. So I knew nothing about this podcast before. I was just flicking through. I, I finished some of my regular podcasts. And I've mentioned before, I usually have a few on a go. And I came to a point where I kind of caught up with the ones I was listening to. And I was just looking through various BBC ones and I've got quite a few on my list now and I thought I'd start with this one, this sounds quite interesting. Now, if you have an interest in war, I would highly recommend this. 
But I really thought the good thing, Andy, was this, that it was very well produced, done by the BBC, but also they delivered it in like a dramatic reconstruction format. So, for example, um, across the episodes, you were hearing stories from different viewpoints. So you had like an American prison psychologist, the British court liaison officer, and many more. So they were like acting out them things from like um, nose, um, newspaper, journals, etc. Um, reports. So it's really well done. And also um, brilliantly acted. And the cast include Natalie Dormer, who played Marjorie from Game of Thrones, um, Henry Goodman and more. So this is one that I definitely recommend. And something I didn't realise, and I don't know if you have um, you know, much knowledge around the World War, I, I was... I had heard of the Nuremberg trials, but I wasn't really familiar. So I knew it was about the Nazi war criminals. But the thing I found really surprising was not all of them actually got convicted. Some of them actually was um, acquitted, which I found very surprising. That is very surprising, yeah, because, I mean, I'm not an expert by any means, but I would have thought a case like, you know, Nazi war trial would have been slam dunks. Yeah, and what they, they um, essentially, the prosecutors had to prove there were four possible charges against the different um, defendants, and some of them were charged and found guilty on numerous ones. Um, but some of them, they might have only been um, kind of tried against one or two of those four ones because there was not enough evidence to kind of charge them all against all the four. So there was interest. So some were obviously executed, some were um, sent to prison for X amount of years, and some was um, acquitted, um, which was um, very surprising. Um, But Andy, this is not related to a podcast, it's related to um, two things actually related to wrestling that I've come across recently. Now, one of them, and I think it might be Netflix. When you load up Netflix, it tells you what's popular and trending, etc. Now, there's one on there about Ric Flair, if I got the streaming platform correctly, a documentary. Have you seen that one? Um, or is it is it something you're planning to watch? Will this be the... Is it the ESPN documentary, 30 for 30? I don't know if it was titled that. It was called Ric Flair. Let me do a bit of live... Um, check-in just on Netflix just so that's, that's a documentary I'm, f- I'm familiar with but I haven't actually seen but it's apparently uh, very very good I think ESPN do fantastic job with their sports-based documentaries and I guess this was done in a sports-based style it's called Ric Flair the Nature Boy so it's I noticed it on Netflix um recently so i don't know when it came out i just noticed it was on my trending and i thought oh wrestling i must mention that to um andy see what his views were if he's watched it and um you know because obviously you you have that interest in wrestling i've not seen it i think it is possibly the same one so i don't yeah it's, it's, it's difficult to Justify. I think I think it is the same documentary. They maybe just retitled it for Netflix. I'm not sure, but I think I think it might be the one and the same. But I've not seen it. But I certainly will will check that out. 
And I was going to say that there's two things, but actually I just remember something. I don't know why it's happening, Andy, but I'm getting more wrestling on my um, TikTok and social media stuff. So there's another one, and you might be familiar with this, with um, Vince McMahon. Um, it must be relatively old, where you see a clip where he's running into the ring and he kind of slides underneath, but he pulls muscles or something in both his legs at the same time and he can't stand up. Yeah. He tore both his quad muscles at the same time. <laughs> so, and yeah, he was in absolute agony because a torn quad muscle is a horrendous injury. But yeah, it's uh, it was on a live pay-per-view. It's not like he just did it, you know, <laughs> you know untelevised. Like, big live pay-per-view, one of the biggest shows of the year. And he has to stay seated in the ring because he just cannot stand up because he's torn quad muscles. And then he needed operation and wheelchairs for months afterwards yeah and the other thing i saw on social media andy and i don't know how recent this is but stone cold sees steve austin was getting some kind of uh, award or something and you had other famous wrestlers um behind him on stage and on tiktok they kept zooming into hulk hogan and apparently there's some kind of beef between him and Stone Cold Steve Austin. So I don't know that that's something you're familiar with or if you can kind of give us a bit of backstory why why the, that I, is. I think that's probably quite old. I mean, Steve Austin went into the Hall of Fame in 2009. There's also um, quite a funny clip. I think it was 2006 when Bret Hart went into the Hall of Fame. So Stone Cold Steve Austin inducted Bret into the Hall of Fame. Hulk Hogan was sat behind them then. And Bret Hart is not a Hulk Hogan fan. And he made some derogatory comments um as well and everyone laughs except for Hogan. That was that was quite funny. So it's it's probably one of those things. But yeah, there was uh, there was I don't know if you'd say there was heat between the two of them, but I know that there was never a Steve Austin versus Hulk Hogan match because they could never agree to work with each other for whatever reason. Ego, cash, whatever it may be. Um Long, a long time ago, you'd hope they've grown up and quashed that by now, but you never know with these with these wrestler types. Yeah, and it was interesting because, like I said, I don't know why it's coming up on my TikTok, um, but they were showing the kind of evolution of Stone Cold Steve Austin from when he was younger. And, you know, I, I don't watch wrestling, but I, I've seen Stone Cold, you know, when I have seen it, I've seen him wrestle. But it showed you the kind of, um, I don't know if you call them characters, the people that he was like the characters he had played before he kind of settled on Stone Cold and Stone, and Stone Cold Steve Austin. So I thought that was quite interesting because it showed you um, like what he was like before. So yeah, with the long blonde hair as uh, stunning Steve. <laughs> yeah, and he was uh, he was the ringmaster for a little bit. He didn't particularly like that. It's it's an interesting full circle that you've done there. I don't know if you were aware of this or not, but when he was losing his hair, um, he decided to go for full buzz cut. You know, the the famous look that Stone Cold Steve Austin now. And that was inspired by Bruce Willis. Really? I believe I believe that to be the case, yes. I would like to think, Andy, that was planned. But that is a coincidence there. But, yeah, there's I I a couple of things. I, I, like I said, I don't know why wrestling's coming up on quite a lot of my TikTok. And I thought, oh, I've got to ask Andy about this when we, we, we talk on the pod. Because... Um, Obviously, you're a big wrestling fan, and these little things have, have come up because there's something else about Shawn Michaels, but I can't remember what it is. Uh, so there's there's quite a lot of um, I'm seeing it more on Instagram more than anything else. The kind of classic wrestling clips, or where they use things like out of context. Like one of, one of the things I'm seeing a lot of just lately 
is the clip of Vince McMahon nearly in tears and kind of doing the cutthroat gesture as if to say, I don't want to talk about this. And someone saying that, you know, various memes saying this is me when such and such, and then they go to that clip like, I don't want to talk about it, and it's it's everywhere. Um, that seems to have become quite a popular meme just lately. Yeah, no. Um, and another thing, Andy, I was at work, I was in the men's changing room, and I was thinking about you because I walked in... Oh, wow. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I walked into the changing room and um, someone was um, getting in their um, work uniform and they were listening to Blink-182. And I thought, oh, me and Andy were just talking about Blink-182 um, the other week now, um, monthly special. Um, And it was was the old one because I think, is it called like What's My Age Again? Yeah, 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 that song, uh, and then I thought, classic. <laughs> yes, yes, um, and I thought because I'm not very sociable, I thought, oh, shall I make a passing comment? But then I thought, no, because then he might ask, start asking me questions about Blink One Eight Two, and then that's like my knowledge there is just like just going to be destroyed. But Andy, after you mentioning the the monthly special, those songs are about one um, Blink One Eight Two. I actually took the, the time and effort, and I listened to some of their songs from there oh, yeah know? what's what, what's your verdict i'm not gonna ask you <laughs> make you do ratings out of 10 but uh it, it's not my not my cup of tea no i um my i even though i have a eclectic type of listening to different music um and i do listen to lots of different music your music i would classify as, as more kind of heavy um so i did listen to um, and I don't think you mentioned these, but I did listen to a couple of songs by Slipknot. But also, when I was doing Slipknot, uh, another band came up quite a lot, Korn. And I know I don't think you you mentioned that. So I listened to Korn, and it was like, oh my god, I can't listen to this. It's just too heavy for me. Um, but yeah, I listened to Blink One Eight Two, Korn, Slipknot are the three that after we met and we we did our monthly special, I kind of went away and actively went out and listened to them um, and that when I was listening to Blink 182 the new ones I listened to wasn't my cup of tea but I did go back and listen to What's My Age Again and their, their big one which I can't remember now um, All the Small Things yeah I listened to those two in four and I thought oh yeah because I remember those coming out when I was younger so yeah uh, it's not so much homework but I just wanted to kind of you know let you know I, I did go out and um, listen to those because I appreciate I that think, yeah yeah, I think there's a bit of similarities. People were saying, I ended up going onto the Slipknot Reddit page because um, I was Googling Slipknot and people, there was a discussion and I don't know, because I was Googling, I don't know how current this was, but there were people on the Slipknot subreddit was actually saying, who do you prefer, prefer Slipknot or Corn? And they were like, there was this conversation because you know you you would know this Um but obviously one came before the other so i don't know if the other one influenced the other one or not or, or if it's very different but the it was interesting because some people were saying in the slipknot subreddit they actually performed corn and they were, they were like explaining why um but i listened to some of the songs like i said it's just too too heavy for me i would say slightly my preference is slipknot corn's probably a little bit earlier than my time but uh yeah it's it's good time you say that because recently um spotify did their wrapped um, promotion that they do and uh, I'll, I'll give you my top five since you know we are the rating room we like to talk rankings my number one listen to band of 2023 was Blink 182 peak listening around October for the new album second was Grey Days 
which is the band with Chester Bennington, you know, from Linkin Park. So um, he was in Grey Days back in the mid-90s before he then left to go with Linkin Park. And just before his death, they had plans to reform and re-release their material that they'd done in the mid-90s, but sadly... Um, his death led to other plans. But what they've done in recent years, Grey Days, is they've released the music with the recordings from the 90s of Chester Bennington. So the the 2020 album called Amends is a fantastic, fantastic album. And uh, Chester Bennington's voice throughout, um, just fantastic. Really, really. So they were my second most listened to band. Third was Shinedown, another band I mentioned in our special. Fourth was Linkin Park, you know, Possibly my favourite band of all time, I'd say. Number five will pique your interest, though, Jay, and that is the band Gunship. They were my fifth most listened to, particularly really? in the last month. Yeah, you know, I think we talked about their latest album, Unicorn. Yeah, yeah. I think at the time we spoke, I'd listened to it once or twice, and I was kind of like, it's okay, you know, need to listen to it a bit more. Absolutely love it. Listen to it loads of times since. It's, uh, it's an absolute banger. I would have to have another conversation because I'm intrigued to see which one, which songs you like because I think that album um, has quite a lot of variation. While you're talking about the Spotify rap, Andy, my top five, so I, I can't remember if I said this in a monthly special, my music taste has changed a lot this year. So the last few years, my top, my top five has been pretty much um, synth wave now this year I've been listening to lots of different type of music so in my top five I've only got two synth wave acts and Gunship's not one of them so The Midnight is um, number one The National who I mentioned um, is another one and The National Andy I, after we spoke I was um, I've got a, a few of their albums I've actually picked up two more since I think we last spoke um, but they did a song that features in Dexter. So I'll have to share that with you um, as well. Kalax is um, a synthwave bloke who comes from Liverpool. I've seen him live in Derby. Hans Zimmer, obviously musical um, film composer. And Dermot Kennedy, who we obviously mentioned as well. Uh, a few weeks ago, you said that he was on a, a panel show or a talk show from memory. So yeah, I I was very surprised um, by the the people I had and it's interesting because you know when you look at your top songs um my top songs actually feature three bands that don't appear in my top five artists so loose change um is king charles the funeral by band of horses and haircut by pt and milo Colic or something. I can't remember her name. Folic. I don't have any of her albums. Um, which I found really, really interesting. And I've listened to 136,000 and a half minutes. Oh, wow. That's, that's, that's good going. My, my top songs list is of the bands mentioned, with the exception of third song was Starmate by Corey Taylor. Corey Taylor, of course, the lead singer of Slipknot. Ah. So there you go. But, uh, yeah, it was... Uh, it's always interesting to see when they do these every year. Um, one of the things that kind of took me a little bit by surprise, and if I can find... So I listened to 859 different artists. I didn't realise I knew that many, but there you go. And there was another stat, if I just flick through. 
where was it? It took me very much. Back. So I'm at seventy eight thousand minutes listened musically. So they're not quite as as much as what you you manage. But it was the stat that I've listened to fifty four different genres of music. I could probably name five. So <laughs> <laughs> that many. Um, so there you go. One of the one of the genres that was high on my list was show tunes. And I'm trying to think. Did I listen to many show tunes? But then I was—I remember I liked the uh, the soundtrack from The Greatest Showman and La La Land. So you know the, those kind of things I really like. But uh, yeah, there we go. I digress. I think um, we'll we'll wrap things up. We've just um, we've waffled a little bit there. But I do want to just finally—you know—you've you've talked about podcasts you listened to recently. I want to give a shout out to a friend of the rating room, Brittany from the Status Alternative podcast. Um, obviously, someone I uh, we had on the show. A few months ago now and i appeared on her her podcast to talk wrestling um and that's because recently and this will be a couple of weeks old this news by the time it airs uh, the return of cm punk in chicago and britney being chicago girl herself and a big cm punk fan um i'm sure she enjoyed that so, so uh, uh welcome back to cm punk and i'm sure you've got at least one chicago and chicagoian who's very very happy although by the sounds of it there's at least 17,000 in the building who are very happy to see him. So uh, so shout out to Brittany. Hope you keep him well. But uh, that brings us to the end of uh, another episode of The Rating Room. Thanks for listening, everybody. Yeah, so you can send us any questions, suggestions, feedback you might have um, via our social media channels or by reaching out to us at theratingroom at gmail.com. We, we have a website, www.theratingroom.com, a YouTube channel, at The Rating Room. And as I mentioned, you can find us on all social media. And make sure you subscribe to our channels because you want to stay up to stay up to date with all the latest news. And like I said earlier, if there's anything that you think we should be watching or any kind of comments, let us know. We like to make these things interactive. Now, I told you to hold that thought quite a while ago, didn't I, about Christmas. It is the season after all. So next week, we've got a second monthly special. The Rating Room Extra is going to bring you all things Christmas. So check that out next week. Um, and until then, thanks for listening, and we'll see you soon. Mm-hmm.